in truth, the anti-Semite is afraid of himself, of his own consciousness, of his own liberty, of his instincts, his responsibilities, of solitariness, of change, of society and the world, of everything except the Jews. He is a coward who does not want to admit his cowardice and so cannot embrace the void. Pathetic earthlings, hurling your bodies out into the void without the slightest inkling of who or what is out here. life just some kind of horrific joke without a punchline that we're all just biding our time until the sweet sweet release of death no don't save riley <laughs> take her to the moon for me okay Welcome, friends, to another episode of Embrace the Void, where we put the J in jacking off. I am your host, Aaron, and my guest this week is Joshua Stein, a postdoc in philosophy at Georgetown. Joshua's interests include social ontology, political philosophy, collective responsibility, and today's topic, anti-Semitic conspiracism. Back in 2021, Josh was on the XX Factor podcast with... Krista Peterson and Katie Montgomery discussing the spread of anti-Semitic conspiracism in gender critical communities, which was something that I used as a heavy resource for my own Skeptic Mag article on that subject. Um, and we thought it would be valuable to have a little chat after the recent Kanye and Nick anti-Semitism tour. So Josh, would you like to say hi to the void? Hey, uh, speaking into the void as it should be. Yeah. So... Why don't you start a little bit just giving folks some background, you know, sort of what bad choices did you make in your life that ended up with you, like, having enough knowledge to talk on a podcast about anti-Semitic conspiracism? So when I was a kid, I went to, I went from a public school to a Catholic high school. I grew up in the Bay Area, and the Catholic high school that I went to was pretty good on talking about religious issues, and there were a handful of Jewish students, and we sort of were involved in helping to coordinate interreligious activities and things like that. So that really started my interest in interfaith issues. We used to, for example, like invite the international religions class to a Shabbat, uh, to a Shabbat service. When I got to college, I went to school in Fresno. And when I was in Fresno, which is sort of in the Bible Belt of California, in Central California, I really started to interact with more of the white Protestant evangelicalism that I think we now see as the, the modern white nationalist movement. Mm -hmm. And so while I was on campus at Fresno, Fresno didn't have a very active Jewish student community. There was no Hillel. There were, Jew there were some Jewish faculty members um, and some Jewish students, but there wasn't really an organization. So I was involved in putting together the Jewish Studies Association, which is now a full degree granting program at the university there. I went to New York for a while and I kind of stopped working on Jewish interfaith issues. And mm -hmm. then the Trump got elected and anti-Semitism started to rise. And I really looked at especially the spate of shootings in 2018 
as a real inflection point for me and saying, okay, I really need to start looking at this and making this a focus of the work that I'm doing. Um, the Pittsburgh mm-hmm. synagogue shooting was a big part of that. The New Zealand mosque shooting was a big, or the Christchurch shooting was a big part of that. The El Paso Walmart shooting and then the uh, Chabad Poe shooting. Those were all things that sort of made me look at the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and go, oh, this is like a real threat to our communities. Mm-hmm. And my own synagogue back in Oakland had had issues with anti-Semitic graffiti. And there was a, an, a, a planned attack that was fortunately thwarted by law enforcement uh, a few years ago. So I, I, those kinds of things really made this a, a, an unfortunate focal point of my, of my work because it just became something I felt like I couldn't kind of sit by anymore. I had to kind of engage with it. And the academic side is how I engage with things. So that was mm-hmm. how I entered into it. What was your sort of experience or perception of anti-Semitic conspiracism prior to sort of getting more actively interested in it in that way? So I, I grew up in the Bay Area. So I had seen a fair amount of what I think is like conventional to call, quote, lefty, unquote, anti-Semitism, where it's, mm. you know, Jews control the American military industrial complex. And that explains Jewish and American support for Israel and those kinds of conspiracy theories, especially around groups like Code Pink and, and, and other things like that. But I had found Code that to Pink be in particular. Uh, some Code Pink is is an organization that I had some particular experiences with that were pretty bad. Do you have any sense about why? I I don't really know. I, I I think it's I think that when you're engaged in certain kinds of activism against a big daunting apparatus, where it feels like you really are fighting against something immovable, mm-hmm. that it's really really tempting to think about that in terms of conspiracy theory. And for reasons that we'll talk about as we go on, I think that Jews are sort of the convenient group to cast in that role as conspirators. Yeah, for historical reasons, I think that that's a big, big issue, right? I, I, I think that if you kind of look at the history of, of Jews, you know, people will talk about Jew hatred, but I actually think that the better way of thinking about it is Jew suspicion, that if you mm-hmm. kind of look at what is the historical animus towards Jews, what is the what is the historical motivator of violence? It's usually not explicit hatred. I mean, in some cases, it goes that direction, but it tends to start with people being suspicious of Jewish duplicity or Jewish malice, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a trend going back to early characterizations of Jewish involvement in the crucifixion to the blood libels in the Middle Ages. Yeah, to... do you buy, so yeah, I actually wanted to, po- to ask you about that in particular, because folk, folks ask me all the time, like, why Jews, why always Jews in conspiracies? And, you know, one one theory that I've personally thought was plausible, but didn't have like, I don't, I don't even know how you would come up with like strong evidence for it, but that like, that the, that the Christ killer myth is kind of the origin story, I feel like of that Jewish distrust. And, you know, you could argue that that was a a political move by the early Christian church to, you know, put themselves in opposition to Judaism as opposed to the Roman, you know, dominant culture or whatever or something like that, you know. But um, it does seem like that story is the like the, the bedrock on which, you know, that's why when you get to the Middle Ages or something, people are 
pointing to Jews in this kind of way. Yeah, I, I think, like you said, I think it's really hard to make theories about history empirically tractable because mm-hmm. it's not like we can do experiments and like maybe if the relations between Christians and Jews had been historically different, then this wouldn't be a major cultural trope. A couple of, of points which I think are worthwhile and often overlooked in this discussion. The first mm-hmm. is that um, there was hostility to Jews in um, other cultures prior to uh, prior to the Christian stuff. So this is something right. that has come up in discussions, um, especially around the work of like Jules Isaac, um, who is a, a major Jewish um, scholar of anti-Semitism in the mid 20th century, who was really focused on sort of the Christian development of anti-Semitism leading up to Nazism. Um, and people pointed out, look, there were these other cultures that had subjugated Jews that had stereotypical views of Jews and so on. Um, the, I think that the reality is that it's hard to separate the Christian history because it's hard to separate the history of Christianity from Europe at all. Right. Right. Like I, I think it's, if there had been no major Christian Holy Roman empire, no Christian dominance in the middle ages, then obviously the major source of anti-Semitism couldn't have been Christian in that way or mm-hmm. couldn't have become culturally dominant or the Christian varieties of anti-Semitism couldn't have become dominant in that way. They would have looked different. Um, I think right. the, the particular label on suspicion is tricky because it has a lot of ideological points in the history of Jews in Europe and in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, uh, it's tied to um, particular Jew- uh, particular views about um, Jewish textualism, which were um, unpopular with the early church, the early Christian church. Uh-huh. Um, and then later it ties into things like medicine and finance and areas where um, either for political and social reasons or because of legal prohibitions on Christian money lending and things like that, um, Jews were overrepresented in those or um, Jews were considered particularly yeah. troubling kind of influencers. Right? Yeah, so, th- so it's really hard to tell. I mean, the, there are the stories about, you know, why are Jews in the academy? And the answer is that Jews, like a lot of a lot of Jews were instructed in literacy from a very early age. So maybe some of it is a cultural value. Um, maybe some of it is a familial value where, you know, everyone in my family was instructed to go to graduate school in right. something or other. So, right. So it's, it's, it's the very Jewish much like, lawyer it's, yeah, it's very right. much. And, and I have friends who are South Asian, right. Who are Desi who say like, yeah, the reason that there are so many Indian doctors is because there are a lot of Indian moms and dads who say you're yeah. going to be a doctor. Well, right? let, me, let so, me jump in on this a bit, actually, because I think there's something here on top of the like history of Christ killing on top of the blood libel stuff. There's this interesting, especially for Jews, intersection of like the model minority concept right. and, and anti-Semitism, it seems like, because one of the things that's often brought up about Jews is they're highly intelligent, right? They're over-intelligent, over-represented in Nobel Prizes, blah, 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 blah. And it's often brought up, I've noticed, by race realists who often want to put them in contrast yeah. with the groups that aren't doing so well on those fronts, uh, arguably. And 
Um, but then it seems to me that like those ideas of Jews as being super intelligent just feed this this narrative of them being these kind of cunning masterminds in this sense, right? It explains why they are the ones that are pulling all of the strings in the grand racial conspiracy against the white people. Yeah, so my, my buddy Celso Neto, who's a philosopher of biology and works on race stuff at Sheffield, um, Celso mm-hmm. and I lived together at, when we were doctoral students at Calgary. Um, we, we have this, go, this, dis, we had this discussion going back and forth about stereotypes. There's a somewhat famous article in the, in the philosophy of race literature on stereotypes where one of the claims is like, well, if it's positive, it's not really a stereotype. Is this, a, Jess, is this a Jessam article? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, so the, <laughs> Nobody Google that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, real, it's really a weird claim. But he and I were talking about this and he was like, yeah. And the example that he, I think he uses in the paper, or maybe this is an example that Celso and I were kicking around, I can't remember, is like, you know, black people are good dancers. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, that's kind of a benign stereotype until you get to the minstrelsy stuff. Right. right. It's it's sort of benign if you don't consider the broader, broader social context of the history of, of black people in American culture. Right. It, in the same way, Jews are intelligent is benign until you get to the conspiracism. And then all of a sudden it's really not benign anymore. Um, and I think that this is true in a lot of the model minority cases. And I think um, the recent spate of anti-Asian and in particular, anti-Chinese racism in the United States um, has drawn a lot from that. Oh, the, mm. the, the Asians are smart and infiltrating, right? And, it, and it, it is fairly transparently similar to the stuff that people were saying about Jewish infiltration in Europe for centuries. Going Also back. interesting to note in both cases, they were accused of being communists. Yes. Yeah. Which is, I think, a, a, a big feature that we'll get into as we go along, uh, which Quasim um, uh, Kasim, who has this sort of short book, intro book on conspiracy theories, argues that uh, conspiracy theories are ultimately a form of political propaganda. Mm-hmm. Um, and that in the case of both the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories propagated by Stalinists and the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories propagated by fascists in Europe leading up to the, the Second World War, both of them basically accused Jews of being infiltrators for the other guy, right? Well, yeah, like so, the, the Stalinists said the Jews are agents of capitalism right. and Hitler and the Nazis and Henry Ford and the American Nazi allies and Nazi sympathizers said, no, the Jews are agents of communism. And it was just like, yeah, we're simultaneously the great communist villain and the great capitalist villain, right? Yeah, that's an interesting idea because usually I think the common conventional wisdom is there are conspiracy theories and they can be taken up for political purposes, but that's not really their, right. you know, their actual essence or something like that. But there, you know, we already talked about the Christ killer thing being potentially a political move as much as anything. Um, there's also, you know, the protocols of Zion, is popularized originally, right, during a period of political upheaval and is used to try to explain, you know, uh, essentially is propaganda for the aristocracy, right, against the 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 progressives, right, against against the poly and the communist um, folks like that. So, yeah, so, so I guess let me talk a little bit about, like, how, you know, what that would mean if that was really, like, the central truth about conspiracies and, you know, 
like how that would shape them in the modern world then. Yeah, so I, I mean, Kasim makes what I think is a pretty interesting argument, mm-hmm. um, which which is that um, that it's it's a part of because I don't think people design conspiracy theories. I think mm-hmm. conspiracy theories are things which develop in communities. But but Kasim's point is a big part of conspiracy theories is about categorizing the political or ideological opponent as evil. Mm-hmm. Right as morally repugnant, rather than as a good faith interlocutor, and mm-hmm. that this is actually not a benign thing. This is a political thing, right? Viewing people who are opposite you not as sincere but as manipulative. The things that they do are in service of the big spooky agenda, right? That's what the protocols is about. Um, if you go back even further to like Augustine Baruel who is the creator of the, uh, the Judeo-Masonic conspiracy mm-hmm. theories. Um, he was really focused on alienating certain members of, um, well, particularly Protestants and certain kinds of Napoleonic groups that were in favor of secularism, right? It, it had a very particular sort of political agenda in the context of um, post-revolutionary France. Mm-hmm. Um it was about my political opponents aren't just wrong. They're lying to you about what they want and they're evil. They're true. They're secret Jews. Yes. Yeah. But not just, but, but it's not just the, the Jewishness. I think this is what for me introduces the element. I think the Jewishness is like typecasting, right? I mm-hmm. think that you have this group that historically has these stereotypes about being duplicitous. Right. And so they conveniently fit in your narrative of people who are duplicitous such that you point them out, right? Mm-hmm. So you'll notice one of the things that we'll notice, and, we, and we'll see this more and more as we come back to the Kanye stuff, is that it's, it's patterned in a very particular way. It's look at the leaders, and then you start to see the echoes appear, the three parentheses appear, around the names of the particular Jewish figures. And often, like I discussed with Krista in the gender critical case, even people who aren't Jewish, who just have yeah. names that are sort of vaguely Eastern European and so sound kind of Ashkenazi. Right. And you're like, wait, 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 wait. Like, how did we go from like, there's this group to it's the Jews in the group who are the ones who are doing all the pushing rather than all of the people in this group why are the right. why are the jews being picked out as special right why is it you know mm-hmm. schumer instead of pelosi who's being highlighted on these flyers why is it you know soros rather than the uh you know schwab or i mean i've seen people yeah. noting that like klaus schwab is jewish which as far as i know he's not um, I, I think he is actually. I'm, I'm not sure now that I, now that you now that you say it. I'm pretty sure I, I, I confirmed I, I, this for at least one article. But I could I mean, be wrong. Maybe he is, but I, the, right. it's sort of weird that you see these people who are that are are picked out in these kinds of cases, right? And it's very rarely, you know, and and then they appeal back to the trope and they say, well, the Jews just kind of run these industries, even yeah. when it's even when it's not really true. You know, you you, you may well, have me, some some Jewish figures, but but it's it's usually actually 
wasps who are in charge of the relevant industries. Right. If you look at the list of the people, the CEOs of banks, you'll notice that a lot of them are not Jewish. Right. Um, but this does bring up something I think that's really important. And this was really um, crystallized for me when there was the Buffalo shooting and he released a manifesto and there was a passage in it that I thought was really important. Everybody emphasized like a part before it about getting radicalized by, you know, um, uh, I think um, Tucker Carlson or someone like that. Right. But mm -hmm. th there was a point that he made that I thought got lost, which was he, he basically says he thinks, you know, all of these rich people are Jews, even the ones that aren't ethnically Jews. He was basically like, Jew doesn't refer to an ethnicity or religion. It refers, like you're saying, almost to a stereotype or a, a mindset, I, th I think is the way he put it. But like, I think he basically said that like Elon Musk could be a Jew by his account, essentially. Anyone who is, you know, doing Jewy kind of things is right. a all Jew. The, all the, the Jews are rich because to be rich automatically sort of makes you a de facto Jew or something like that. Right, and all it's the rich people are secretly Jews because yeah. that's what, it, you know, like you have to be a, a conniving Jew in order to make all of that money or something like that. So yeah. it, it really becomes unimportant who actually is a member of the tribe versus just, you know, Bill Gates. Bill Gates is often, I think, accused of being Jewish when he's not uh, or being right. a secret Jew. Um, so I, I wanted to cor correct or just clarify one thing. You know, we're talking about like the way this stuff is used politically. I've talked before with folks like Dentith who, who like push back some on the portrayal of conspiratorial or, or conspiracy theories as always kind of like the Alex Jones style of things. And I do think that there are there's a sense in which like conspiracy theory applies even to belief in a, a surprise birthday party or something like that. It seems like what, what you're saying, just to clarify, is you know, whatever the, the theory, you know, whatever, whatever conspiracy theories are in principle, in practice, they are political tools. That's the way they're almost always used, it seems. Yeah. So, so um, again, I'll go back to, to Kasim's book, which I think is a really good introduction for people who want to look at this. Um, he just differentiates between conspiracy theory, capital C, capital T, and conspiracy theory, lowercase c, lowercase t, right? Whereas, mm -hmm. where like, there's these kinds of views that we have that like about the way global finance works or about the history of the CIA or whatever, which in lots of cases are pretty plausible given what we know about the history of these organizations, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, when we talk about, well, maybe the CIA is involved in such and such in the Middle East or South America, like that's a pretty well uh, established sure. series of evidence around those sorts of views. And I talk about this a lot because um, especially when the anti-vax conspiracy theories were starting up, um, a lot of people were saying, oh, well, it comes out of black and Latino communities, which actually turned out not to really be true. But right. there were there were people who were saying that. And I said, look, I understand where it comes from in a community that was subjected to something like Tuskegee because the level of, of experience there, the kind of experience there justifies that attitude of skepticism and suspicion, right? I mean, you understand yeah. the history of there's a guy out to get you, right? Like there right. kind of was in those cases. I'm not just kind of in like the Tuskegee case, it was pretty gross. Sure. You have the shooting of Fred Hampton. You have all these yeah, sort of, you have like... all of these sorts of cases. You have the surveillance of the black Panthers and, and, 
um, black liberation groups in the in the 60s and 70s. Like, I mean, that's all real. So how do you separate, right? What is the line of demarcation between the kinds of conspiracy theories that we're talking about, like QAnon, like uh, the Zionist occupational government, like the sovereign citizen stuff that we're seeing? What is the mm-hmm. what is the line of demarcation between the reasonable and the 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 big C big T? And I don't yeah. actually think there's a good answer to that question. I'm, I'm I don't really, either. I was going to ask you. I was, I, yeah, I'm <laughs> really really skeptical. Um, I think that um, there are people in epistemology who have done some really good work, and I think Kasim makes some really good points about it um, and about the the role of politics and the creation of political motivation to certain kinds of action mm-hmm. that are that are really instructive for understanding which is which. But I think there are inevitably going to be borderline cases, right? Mm-hmm. So when, when I talk to someone who thinks, right, that like, um, when, mm-hmm. and it also depends on cultural context. If, if I were talking to, you know, uh, a, a black activist from where I grew up in Oakland, who is concerned about the way that vaccines are used, um, that's going to be very different than the way I talk to a white suburban mom about mm-hmm. it, because I recognize that the historical experience of one of those people has a much stronger justificatory force than the other one. So there are epistemic differences in those two positions that do influence attitude. Um, and, and I have that same conversation with people within the Jewish community when we talk about um, how to interact with with non-Jewish people, especially white evangelicals um so i i don't i don't think i think that there are going to be borderline cases this is my 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 point here i think there are going to be cases where at this point they seem like they could they could go either way depending on the evidence that we have i mean there are Mm -hmm. there are cases right did the u.s know ahead of time that the saudi government was planning to kill jamal khashoggi right right you could make a pretty decent case that they knew Epstein but we is another don't. one, I'm sure, right? Yeah, and, and the Epstein well, stuff and what's going on behind it. Those are cases where it's like, I'm agnostic on those things, but I'm not going to go as far as saying those are obviously capital C, capital T conspiracy theories because it, like, it's it's in a little bit of a weird spot epistemically. Um, and so, they, yeah. those may be valid. So I think there's an epistemic problem here that may even be worse than just edge cases. I think inevitably, whenever you categorize things, you always have edge cases. But I'm more concerned that there's um, an unavoidable epistemic problem here once we do take seriously the existence of actual conspiracies by our government. You know, it goes something and I want to get to the Kanye stuff. So we won't spend too much time on this. But just while we're while we're in theory land for a second, I'm curious how you would push back on this argument, which is going to be to me, it runs something like this. Right. If I take the conspiracy advocate position here for a second, I'm going to say, look, we know the government's conspire to hide a bunch of information of various sorts that they think is dangerous. It is not implausible that if we did have information about aliens, that our government would classify that and try to hide it, right? Um, we, we've seen, for example, that there was this, you know, these videos that have now been released that, you know, we don't really know what they are, that sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, once you have 
a plausible, you know, that there could be sort of alien cover up in this kind of way. You open the plausibility door for alien technology. Uh, once you do that, it seems like you're kind of off to the races epistemically about what is a plausible conspiracy theory, right? Um, folks like Dentith have tried to distinguish between like plausible and implausible conspiracy theories to try to help this problem of the hard cases. But I don't, I, I think it actually, it, it gets worse rather than better the more you look at it because it's like, anything becomes plausible once you accept, like I said, some fairly basic plausible, you know, possibilities in this kind of sense. And then any evidence to the contrary, like, I mean, we always, we already know that like conspiracy theorists have ways to sort of undermine all evidence to the contrary, but there's a reasonable argument if you have alien technology on the table that like lots of weird shit is on the table at that point. So how do you feel like, you know, as conspiracy debunking folks, how do you sort of push back on an argument like that? So I, I'm going to make what I sometimes call, I, I sometimes jokingly call the discipline argument, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the core idea of conspiracy theories that occur at a large scale over a long period of time means that a particular group is incredibly disciplined and organized. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, um, most of the groups that we talk about in these kinds of contexts are not that disciplined and organized. Sure. Uh, and they certainly aren't disciplined and organized over periods of decades, right? I, I, it, the idea that that certain law enforcement agencies, which have small groups within them, might be able to do things like this um, over, you know, a period of two, two or three decades before we know is mm -hmm. quite different than saying the entire command structure of the Air Force, which in, or the entire command structure of the United States military which would include upper level figures like Michael Flynn um, is sufficiently disciplined to keep this secret over a long period of time, I think really does strain credulity in those kinds of cases. Right. I mean, right. you can yeah, say this, this oh, is a well, classic argument, right? If there's more than people five people. Yeah. Right. Well, I always tell people the joke. I said, like, well, how do you know that the CIA didn't kill Kennedy because Kennedy died? Right. Uh -huh. Like, like the idea is that it, it rests on a view of government competence that is, given the history of government, fairly unlikely to be true. That the same the same government agent, the UFO stuff, right. I always found interesting, partly because I'm a kid who grew up on the X-Files. Mm -hmm. um, Which I think I, has a lot to answer for in all of this. But yes, yeah. I agree. Um, and the new season was so hard to watch. Um, oh, but yeah. but it, look... The idea that the same government doing the men who stare at goats was embracing alien technologies strikes me as a, a great ridiculous premise for a Steve Carell Netflix show and not mm -hmm. much use elsewise, right? Like it, it's not actually, it, it's the kind of theory that would make you have to radically reevaluate how competent the government and how competent these agencies are. Because they have done some limited things very well, which fall inside their bailiwick. The, the, the surveillance, the murdering of political leaders, they're good at that stuff. The right. CIA is good at that stuff. The FBI is good at surveillance. Are they good at controlling technological development and keeping technological development under wraps? No. They have they've historically been very bad at those things. Right. Uh, and and things like the Stingray, you know, these these like surveillance technologies that were developed internally 
became known fairly quickly after they were developed. I mean, it's entirely right. possible that they have kept these things under wraps, but that tends not to be how those kinds of things work. So, and that, well, that's the problem, though, right? Like, as long as it's possible, right? You have this door that like conspiracies can walk through and for you know like this is this is a problem that we always know about when we're dealing with conspiracy theories that like for every example there's an explanation for every counter argument there's a explanation right you just pivot to another thing or you you know you say well look there are people who were trying to reveal it and they were killed off right like that's that's an easy solution to the problem of discipline right there it seems to me and unlike i don't i don't want us to believe in conspiracy theories because i think they're often very harmful but i don't want to pretend that i have an epistemic answer to this problem when i don't yeah and know? i don't think it's a decisive answer right for mm-hmm. me it's about okay what's the plausibility of this right i have to make practical it's a principle of practical reasoning that i can only make decisions about events that rise above a certain probability threshold Right. Like, what like I'm they, saying is conspiracy theories fuck up your ability to assess probability thresholds entirely. Like, if yeah. it's, and, you know, and, if there's super intelligent AIs from aliens, yeah. then who the fucking knows what they're organizing, right? Exactly. And I think, I think that that's a reasonable set of, of worries to have. But in the scope mm-hmm. of practical reasoning, it's not that big an issue. Because long shot events are a kind of an, an ordinary part of the set of things that we discount when we're talking about those kinds of cases. Right. I mean, I very we rarely it's a, do. It's a, we could argue it's a practical issue in the sense that more people, it seems like, are, are more likely to be sucked into these things the more plausible they appear. Right. Like, you know, yeah. it's one thing and, fifty and years act, ago when you don't know plausibility anything, is right? not right. An appearance of plausibility right. is not the same as actual plausibility, and people tend to dramatically overestimate weird fringe possibilities. I, I'm writing about mm. this in another context, um, in a risk assessment context. But, but there's lots of psychological data that shows that, like, people think that terrorist attacks are way more common than they actually are, for example. Sure. And right? part they, of this they, is they, the media exaggerating extreme events, that sort of thing. Yeah, and attention, attaches, well. to, attention attaches to big stuff and memory right. attaches to big stuff. So people don't think about the number of cases of the flu because they don't see them that often or because they don't, they don't kind of prioritize them as highly in their risk profile. So they dramatically mm-hmm. overestimate their likelihood of dying in a 9-11 style attack and dramatically underrate their their likelihood of dying from the flu. For sure. So, so I mean, I, I yeah. think that that's what you have to do with conspiracy theories. You have to say, look, the, 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 the probability of this thing being true is really, really low. It, it, if you actually look at what it would require you to accept, is it possible? Sure. If you want to watch the, the cartoon series Inside Job, which postulates and builds a world out on oh, all of these yeah. conspiracy I'm actually, I don't totally hate that show. I actually think that it does a decent job of I think it's of, really interesting. I think it's a really it's pretty, interesting It's pretty exercise. affectionate and it doesn't it doesn't do a lot of the things that I dislike where cuz I mean, you know, you were mentioning the political use of conspiracy theories. It's also important to note that like the term conspiracy theory many people will argue is also a political cudgel that's used against one's opponents. So it's like everybody is claims that everybody is being driven by politics. You know, and I think a lot of it is that we all, you know, a lot of this is just it's a messy, fucked up, random world and people Mm -hmm. recognize different patterns and then argue over those patterns a lot. Yeah. Um, And I think that's actually like I actually am completely willing to acknowledge that in lots of contexts, X is a conspiracy theory is used as a cudgel when it really when it's a really serious mistake. 
Mm-hmm. And then maybe even people who were epistemically well positioned at the time use it wrongly to dismiss views that um, they probably should have known better than to dismiss. Um, yeah. And I think of like, I, I have, you know, I talk with people a lot about the Iraq war cases, right? And like, what were the Bush administration's motivations during the Iraq war cases? And it's like, well, if we had kind of known some of these background assumptions about Saddam at the time, and we had known more about the instability of evidence and the insincerity and in presentation of the evidence about what WMDs, maybe our, maybe things that looked like conspiracy theories then wouldn't have looked like conspiracy theories. So I, right. I, I am like sympathetic to those kinds of moves. Um, and so I, I don't want to suggest that, that this approach to thinking is, is categorically bad, right? Mm-hmm. There are circumstances where that kind of critical scrutiny um, isn't, it can be very constructive. Yeah. Um, I try to talk and, about like, I try to use the word harmful to distinguish yeah. between that these, you know, some kind of conspiracy theories and other ones. I do think there is some epistemic potential harm just from a virtue ethics perspective of like habituating yourself into believing based on insufficient evidence in general and that going from like trivial beliefs to more severe ones. But I do think there's an important distinction to be made between what are, you know, like the belief that your friends are are conspiring to throw a birthday party is not a dangerous conspiracy theory belief in the way that like anti-vaxxerism is or something like that. Yeah. And I, and I think, um, I mean, I, I've spent a fair amount of time with, I'm not, I don't do epistemology really as part of my own work. Um, it's not an area that I work in that much. Um, mm-hmm. but one of the lessons that I've taken from a lot of the developing epistemology, um, in, especially the last like two decades um, is that you can, you can have a really tense relationship between um, skepticism and credulity Mm -hmm. that, that where you're constantly kind of on the wobble board and trying to keep your balance between the appropriate amount of skepticism. And that one of the things that really matters is the stake of the decision that you're thinking about. Mm-hmm. Right, what's called pragmatic encroachment, right? The idea that if you're making decisions about the health of your child, the 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 epistemic values have to look different than if you're like planning Deciding what you're gonna have for dinner or something. Yeah, yeah, you're planning. You're making a plan for later in the evening when you think your friends might, um, yeah, be throwing a birthday like party for you or something like that. Like those kinds of things, I think. Right. Are so really then you can go in the tricky. other direction with that, and you can end up with like a will to believe kind right. of problem. But and, and those before are, we run out of time, I, I do yeah. want to spend a little bit of time on Kanye because I, you know, like we we partly wanted to talk about specifically why this uh, specific event happened. Um, so, can you explain a little bit why a incredibly famous black rapper is hanging around with a bunch of white nationalists talking about Jews? So there, there's a, a story to which we may know, never really know the answer, which is sort of the order of operations between Kanye becoming friends with Candace Owens mm-hmm. and Trump and associating with um, Fuentes and Milo, who aren't exactly directly connected to people like, like Owens, um, but, right. but, but travel in sort of the same orbits. Right. There's some like story about how he went from the Prager University orbit to the America first 
pack. My understanding is actually Milo was the one who did the connecting on that second and track. I, that, that's what like I've he, heard too, yeah. and I'm not a hundred percent sure I buy that. And I, right, this is less important, evidence. though, of course, in the philosophical yeah. overlaps here, yeah. right? So I think that part of what happens in this kind of context um, is that people have personal experiences, and and Kanye, if you look at the messages and stuff that he's posted and that he's openly disclosed. Kanye is very clear that his anti-Semitism is informed by his personal experience with a handful of Jewish people, uh-huh. right? Like th- he had a guy who was a manager who was maybe a schmuck. Um, I don't know. I don't know the guy. I mean, right. I can imagine and, trying and this to is manage not an unusual Kanye. Story, like not a, yeah, and it, there's, it, a, there's a theory that like a lot of rap conspiracy theory ties to exploitation by people who are perceived to be Jewish. Yeah, and there are, there are, I mean, to be fair, there are stories where that has happened, where sure. managers who are in fact Jewish have exploited black artists, and that's terrible, and that is really bad, and I think the Jewish community should make clearer to people to knock that stuff off. Um, but I don't, it's not a, it's not like a conspiracy theory, it's a, ba- it's a guy who's a jackass trying to make money. Um, and I, I, I mean, I don't actually have a view about whether Kanye's case was exploitative because right. it's ha- kind of hard to make the argument that someone who was actually largely managing his own brand and his own IP with Adidas and his own music portfolio was actually being exploited by his manager rather than just his manager trying to stop him from saying things that are insane, um, mm-hmm. which is which is one way of reading those messages. Yeah, we should be um, careful also, uh, you know, you, you, things, that, things that are insane, right? One, there's a complicated conversation here about conspiracism and mental health. Yeah. A lot of folks, you know, were like, oh, it's not politics, it's not conspiracies, it's just mental illness or something like that. Um, I think there was some arguments that we don't, we shouldn't be talking about Kanye because it is just a mental illness issue and we're just kind of, um, you know, gawking at someone who's going through a mental health crisis or something like that. How do you how do you parse those kind of concerns? So I, I think the mental health dimensions of Kanye are tricky, and I'm a big believer in the the Goldwater rule, which is that if you work in mental health, you shouldn't comment on the mental health of anyone you haven't examined. Now, Kanye has openly discussed the fact that he has a diagnosis for bipolar for, for some form of bipolar disorder. Um, I, it, it seems to be a matter of record that his instability, whether it's uh, partly or wholly attributable to um, bipolar disorder and uh, non-compliance with medical regimen, um, has made him fairly dangerous in a number of contexts, including to his, his now ex-wife. Um, mm-hmm. And so I don't want to discount the possibility that 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 is in some way stopping him from saying things that he might otherwise say. Um, I'm sympathetic to the view that we should talk less about Kanye uh, and more about Nick Fuentes. Oh, interesting. I, I think well, well, I think that's next. I think that's actually the point, because because the, the reality of, of the situation with Milo and Fuentes mm-hmm. is that for them, Kanye is a way to draw attention. So right. whether or not, whatever his state is, whether he Kanye is a true believer, whether he's having a manic episode, whether he, whatever that the facts of that case are, the way it is being weaponized by 
Fuentes and Milo to bring attention to them in particular, those two people in particular, who now have broken with each other, um, yeah, is is kind of what's actually a, what's actually deeply dangerous about Kanye. I don't think that I don't think people are listening to Kanye give interviews to Alex Jones and thinking that's a smart dude that I should listen to. I'm complicated that. on that actually, right? Because it seems to me you and I sitting here might feel that that is the normal response, but I don't know for a fact that there aren't a large number of people who are listening to him thinking that he's speaking the truth and that he's creating an effective permission structure for you know people of his own. You know, like I, I, I want to talk about Fuentes in a second, um, but the fact that it is Kanye and not some white you know douche like uh, Fuentes does create a different permission structure it seems like for people in communities of color who are you know sympathetic to these kinds of concerns and see him doing this and then see him in their view getting silenced and that can be a kind of reinforcing mechanism for a lot of these folks so i, I the reason i don't think i'm not as worried about that with kanye as i have been about some other cases is that i think the other things that kanye has done have obliterated his respect in black communities so much that the idea that they are listening to him on Alex Jones hmm. strikes me as fairly unlikely. It's inconsistent with my experience with But they don't people. have to necessarily hear him on Alex Jones, right? They get to see a quote or, just or on you know. Insta or YouTube or whatever. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, those kinds of things. Um, so I, I, I was really nervous when... Um, Nick Cannon made kind of a hotep pivot to some anti-Semitic stuff and to the yeah. black Hebrew Israel stuff. And I'm nervous about it when Kyrie Irving does it. And the reason is that because those are, Nick Cannon has his own problems, but Kyrie does a lot of work in the black community that is really well respected and should be, by the way, and should be. He does a lot of stuff that is really good. And anyone who doesn't acknowledge that is just doesn't, either doesn't know the facts or is lying. He does, he gives to like, kids who are going to college and pays their tuition, right? Like he does these kinds of things, which are really positively influential. So you might look at him promoting this thing and go, oh, that's the secret to black empowerment. In the same way that I think the Jewish community was worried about Farrakhan for a long time. Mm -hmm. I'm not so worried about that with Kanye. And the reason I'm not so worried about that with Kanye is that um, I, I think that the people that he's appealing to who are black, are already pretty far aligned with people like Candace Owens and Laverne Spicer and these sorts you think he's of speaking other to the hotep? I think he's speaking they're not hoteps. You that, don't think so? That's I, I don't think that he's speaking to the hotep community at all. Really? Because there's nothing pan-African going on. There's nothing like when when Dr. Griff or when some of these like um more um, black liberation driven people do it, um there is a lot of baggage that they load into that truck. And I don't see it with Kanye. I mean, when, I'm not when, sure that necessarily means that it's not Hotep though, as so much as it's just like not well, like researched Hotep. Like I, you know, some of the claims, some of the claims I see, I see Kanye making about, you know, I think he was talking with someone about like the alien stuff yeah. and like getting into alien DNA harvesting kind of stuff. That to me is, is very clearly in the Hotep vein you know, coming from people like Bill Cooper, stuff like yeah, that. Sure. And he's definitely reading that stuff. But when, but I don't think, 
uh, reading in I'm reading, I'm right, right. reading in quotes here. <laughs> right, right. He's he's he's, he's definitely read, watching those YouTube he's being videos. read into it by by people. But the thing is, when when Kanye went on TMZ and said, you know, slavery sounds like a choice, right? Mm-hmm. That is a kind of quasi Farrakhan line, but it was done without the Black liberation elements that have made Farrakhan actually compelling to people. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't really see any black people coming to Kanye's defense when he said that. Um, and similarly, I, I mean, I saw some people, I will say this, I saw some people on uh, black folks who are on the right come to Kanye's defense on a personal basis. Yeah. So Candace Owens had an article defending Kanye over anti-Semitism on a personal basis. I know him, he's a friend. But I didn't see anyone going, oh, what he said was right. The people, only people I saw doing that were people like the, you know, the Goyam Defense League, were people who are already so far gone. Um, and even mm-hmm. like a lot of the, the, the black Muslim folks who I work with, um, many of whom are non-anti-Semitic and a few of whom have some anti-Semitic views, but are, are still willing to talk to me, obviously. Um, right. They basically look at Kanye and go, oh, that's that's like peak sellout. Interesting. Like that's that. But I I, I mean, I can't I'm not going to speak for the the whole of the community because I don't know. Um, My experience was that the majority of commentaries, the vast majority of commentaries I saw from black folks were, oh, my God, it's Kanye being nuts again. And, um, you know in a sure. different way, right? In, 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 a, in a different way than his previous slavery comments, but, and his misogynistic stuff, but contiguous with that, very contiguous with that. Well, that's good. Um, um, whereas I saw the, 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 the far right white Christian groups, right. Very interested in what he was saying. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about them some. I also, I mean, I think there's something here about a concern, like maybe these concerns are overblown, but we, maybe we can talk about that if we still have some time. But let's talk about like the white nationalists. Um, you know, we, we were discussing this a bit before the show and something we were chatting about that I think is is worth highlighting. Kanye does seem like a very big get for the white nationalists in yeah. the sense that like he is bringing a lot of attention to them, but he's also uncontrollable in a way that created some really interesting tensions within like the people that he was talking to even on these particular shows. Do you want to say a little bit about like what is the problem that Kanye presents for these folks that are trying to use him much the way that the GOP tried to use Trump? The problem for this particular problem with Kanye is a problem that the right uh, wing, right nationalist movement has known about for a long time, going back to Pat Buchanan. Um, It's Mm -hmm. the problem of quote, naming the Jew unquote, right? Right. As soon as you go from it's the globalists, it's the Zionists, to using the Jewish label explicitly or affiliating with the Nazis explicitly, um, Mm -hmm. you become recognizably bad to a group of people who previously might have been listening with some interest. Um, Tucker Carlson, early in his career, criticized Pat Buchanan on this grounds, basically saying of, of Buchanan, I agree with a lot of what he has to say, but gosh, I wish he weren't such an obvious anti-Semite. Um, I'm para- obviously paraphrasing, but but basically that was the view. And we've seen 
more and more savvy figures who are aligned in various ways with um, the, that historical contiguous white nationalist movement. Which, which seems indistinguishable from the Southern strategy as regarding yeah. black people, for example, right? Where you start with a much more explicit racial bias and you code it and code it and code it. And now what we're seeing is some folks are like, let's uncode it. Right. And, and there has always been, there has always been a subset of that movement that you had to keep an arm's length from Mm -hmm. either rhetorically or politically um, or even in policy because they were viewed as so noxious. Now I actually think and and the sociological data suggests this too, that the portion of people who have those really extreme and explicit views hasn't grown as much as people think. It has Mm -hmm. grown, but it hasn't grown as much as people think. The problem is that it's become central to the political prospects of especially right-wing political candidates. Right, so I was going to say, like, Trump meets with Nick Fuentes, someone who openly you know names the jews in this kind of way and it doesn't appear to have torpedoed trump's career you know like any more than like he already is but like it doesn't you know nobody like was just shocked or stepped back from him in any kind of way as far as i could see so so that the what i think is the difference and this is me doing um political science um and i recognize that this is like partly an empirical question and there's data and people interpret it differently but my read on it is something like this um it used to be that this wing of the GOP existed and it existed in the eighties when Buchanan ran against Reagan and, and Bush, like, like when he was running, he was trying to give voice to this group, but what mm-hmm. happened um, and, and what happened, I think really post George W. Bush, because Bush really was actually more or less fine on things like immigration. He had problems in other areas, obviously, but he was the governor of Texas when, um, and supported path to citizenship stuff. I mean, he was a really much more complicated figure, but it, as the GOP kind of shifted and shifted and shifted and um, white evangelical grievance became even more racialized, this mm-hmm. became a central voting block in the Republican primary. And I think that's what happened in 2016. In, 20, in 2012, no one was playing to that demographic in in 2008 you can argue sarah palin was but she was still very right. dog, she was still very dog whistle about it. and you could argue there were coded versions of it in other and you, you can know, argue, you can argue stuff, that right? there was but, yeah. stuff about ron paul's campaigns which had some ties to this and the santorum campaign which had some elements of this right but um, it wasn't which, and, and newt gingrich all of these people had some political success but that base didn't coalesce as central to the republican party until trump and part of what happened is a lot of people left the Republican Party mm-hmm. during Trump. And the result is that as a percentage of primary voters, right. that group is now much larger. So right. it looks much more, much larger than it is, um, even though as a portion of the population, it's either the same or maybe slightly larger than it used to be. But because it's now become central of one of the two major political parties. Mm-hmm. It has a platform that it never would have had in the 1980s because you had to dog whistle in the 80s because yeah. it just wouldn't have been acceptable in a primary. And, and Reagan 
had to go up on stage when the Klan endorsed him and say, these guys suck. Right. I mean, he, he did that. Right. right. You know, you're not welcome to, um... here. And and you can say, look, I mean, Reagan did lots of dog whistling. He really, really did. But he knew that it had to be dog whistling. And even though he had these private racist views, whatever, that right. didn't matter. What it, like that's been the shift is that now it's not just it's not just politically acceptable in on the far right. It's politically necessary and expedient. Yeah. So we're running short on time. Um, the, you know, this idea about like what's what's going to come next, I think, is an interesting question. Because like, you know, another example that people often put forward is McCain sort of pushing back on Obama being a secret Muslim when the woman mentions it. Right. And then you have Trump essentially running on birtherism and like getting famous on birtherism. So that's that's an impressive contrast in, in just a couple of years. What do you think this means for like the future of right wing politics and American politics, which is, un- you know, unavoidably yoked to right wing politics in the way that our two party system is? Do you have any sense of like where this is headed or is it just like unprecedented at the moment territory? I, I mean, it's certainly it, there are certainly precedents for it, mm-hmm. right? It, in not just in um Europe, which obviously has all these fascist examples, but in America, it's it's not wildly unprecedented. In the early 20th century, you did have like political movement with like f- people like Father Coughlin and like um, yeah. and and there are parts of it that feel unprecedented though. Yeah, like, and Lindbergh you know. and and figures like that. Um, sure. I, I think that Pro-Nazi. one of the yeah the 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 sort of there were these cases that you can make analogies, but I think it's hard to to look from our present position and and make a, a predictive judgment. Partly because I don't really think that's how political science works, um, mm-hmm. and how and how these things work. Um, I think I, I've been very nervous about the the kind and number of Republicans who are getting elected to the House. Um, I've so been like it's going great for Kevin McCarthy. Yeah. Um, but I, w- part of what I think is that, you know, the, the, the Freedom Caucus right now is like Kanye, right? Kevin mm-hmm. McCarthy thought he had this wing that was a loyalist red wing, and they were just clearly not something he could control, right? It's, it's, he's, he's got a tiger by the tail, and the tiger is about to eat his face. Right. Like, it, it, arguably, it started its dinner already. Like, it, it's... It'll be interesting to see what the Republican response is, because a lot of the moderate Republicans, the majority of the politically salient ones are in the Senate. But they basically said, we don't think that Kevin McCarthy can put together a reasonable um, budget. So we're going to pass the budget in the lame duck session, the Biden budget in the lame duck session, even while the Democrats have a majority in the House. The Republicans voted for it, not the moderate ones did. So I, I think what we're going to see is um, people will talk about like what happens if the parties split, and I think that's less likely than just someone's going to win and someone's going to lose a fight for control of the party. And I hope it's the moderates. I mean, I hope that the party in five years looks more like Mitt Romney and less like Donald Trump. And I am not a huge fan of Mitt Romney, mm-hmm. but I, that would be a great direction for the party to go. Um, and if the result is that the party moves farther right, I hope that people who are in the center leave 
and disempower them. Because this is, this is what that's worries me, the though, other right? prospect, right? We like, have this. We have the two-party system, though, and we have a set of you know a form of elected government in which one of those parties is going to hold forty-eight percent of the government or whatever at any given point in time. Now right. it seems like so. It doesn't seem like you know Liz Cheney getting kicked out of the Republican Party, you know, is de- depleting the Republican Party's ability to ruin our government on a large scale. I guess what I'm worried about is that like this seems like a very large cult that we don't have any way to get them you know and like our primary system means that it seems unlikely that the moderates are going to win this fight based on you know all the things we've set up until this point so yeah i guess i i I struggle to see any way that we pull out of this spiral societally um because it doesn't seem like the gop has any mechanism by which to write itself yeah i don't think it'll feel like pulling out i think that like people expect the clouds to break and something to happen and i don't Mm -hmm. I don't think that that's how this works. Like, I, we're just going like, to muddle through. <laughs> I think we're going to kind of slosh through it, um, and it's going to feel like a flood for a while. And slowly, things are going to improve. I, I think that that's like the, the reality is like. I, and I was talking to somebody about this recently. Marjorie Taylor Greene's not going anywhere. She's in a hard red district. Mm-hmm. She, she, her constituents agree with the crazy stuff that she says. Like there are going to be people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar because there are districts in the United States where majority of people have that view. The question is, what happens to the GOP in the other districts? Do they Mm -hmm. have to do they have do the people in those districts wind up voting for Democrats because as an institution, the party is so gross, they don't want to support it anymore. Um, And I think that I. I get that that on the whole, the loss of the House was a loss, but I think that I am a little bit reassured looking at the way those votes broke, especially yeah, in states. It definitely like, went better than I expected, for sure. Especially in states like Arizona and Nevada, which are states where I actually think a lot of voters are going to become, especially, and we owe the Latino communities, um, the liberal leaders in the Latino communities, a lot of credit for this, just like we owe black leaders in the South a lot for, for the role that they played in getting Warnock reelected. Like those are the groups that have clearly gone to a lot of fence sitting um, mm-hmm. Catholic and evangelical members of their community and said, dude, these people are like super racist and they want to deport Abuela. And like, what are we going to do? Like we got, we can't right. do this. And, and that's a shift that I am hoping, hoping um, happens and it will be slow. It will not happen quickly. Everyone seems to expect it's going to be the next election cycle. It's going to be the next thing. And it's mm-hmm. like that. America doesn't move that fast. I mean, America is really slow on this stuff. Like we, we like to think because we have an election every two years that we see meaningful marks of progress every two years. But mm-hmm. um, that's not how the, the waltz works. Like it, it's just it's a really messy process. And we, we tend to forget that, like, there was political backlash to civil rights, right? And there yeah. was political backlash to suffrage. And there was, like, you know, it it took, you know... I'm worried we're still in the political backlash to civil rights. We haven't even I, talked I think about we, that. I think, we, I think we are. I think modern right? conspiracism is driven by the backlash to civil rights. But I think that's right. definitely right. All right. All right. Uh, we got to cut it there. No, 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 no. I, I, you don't get to go anywhere. So I get to torture you. Okay. Um, and then we got some <laughs> VIP where I will ask you some more annoying questions. Um, but first, 
Uh, it is time for the enlightening round two trolley boogaloo edition. Why don't you just tell me the right answer? Well, that's what's so great about the trolley problem is that there is no right answer. So for folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of scenarios. Uh, You as a philosopher obviously are genetically predisposed to know what the trolley is. But for folks who are not familiar, uh, you know, these are scenarios in which you're going to have a lever and you're going to have to decide what you should do in the situation. So Mm -hmm. keyword there is should, not would. Um, What do you think is your moral obligation in these scenarios? Okay, are you ready? Okay. Okay, so first of all, classic trolley problem. Should you save five by killing one? Yeah. Okay. All right, then if that's the case, should you save five by shoving one person onto the tracks to derail the train? I, I, I think it's permissible, but not obligatory. We're not going to use super derogatory in this. Yeah, yeah. Either. I think I, should I, I be worse than you. Uh, I think you're. I don't think you're blameworthy either way. I think you probably should. You should. Okay. Um, next one. Should you save yourself by killing one other? No. Okay. Should you save yourself by letting another person die? Uh, no. Okay. Should you save your favorite body of artistic work by killing the artist? Definitely not. Okay. What if the artist is begging you to kill them and save their work? Okay. <laughs> Again, right. that's permi- that's permissible, but not obligatory. I, I would uh, say in that case, yeah. you can. You, sh- you should. But I don't know that you should. I- I'll say you should because that's clear. Should, let's say it's right. a soft should. <laughs> yeah, okay. not as clear as the the case where they don't want to die. Okay. What about should you save the only existing sentient artificial intelligence by killing one human? No. Interesting. What if it turns out that you are the sentient AI? Should you let a human die to save yourself? No. Okay. What about saving a random non-human animal by killing one human? No. Okay. What about your favorite personal non-human animal? Saving them by killing one human. Okay. What about saving an entire ecosystem by killing one human? No. Okay, you have survived. How do you feel? Uh, I feel fine. I, I mean, yeah. my views on most of these cases are like, I Silly. I think that I most of my views on these cases are like, eh, these things are permissible, but not like not required. Like I'm not going to hold anybody blameworthy for for these kinds of. You got a pretty lax moral framework, is what you're telling me, right? You can just yeah, kind of I have do a, whatever I, you want. I'm more of a permissivist than than most than most people. On these kinds of things. Like the ecosystem case, it's like, I probably wouldn't fault somebody for doing it. Okay. I we'll, talk about, I, we'll talk about it some more. Yeah, uh, yeah. We'd like to talk just about that in the in the VIP a bit. Um, but since we are over time, I will ask you, if you don't mind, to tell folks one more time where they can find your material. So you can find me on Twitter at the Philosotrol. 
Um, and all my stuff is kind of linked through Twitter. So that would be the best, the best place to go to find it. There you go. And we'll link it in the show notes, of course. Um, but Josh, it's been fun. I appreciate you coming on and doing out with me here some. And if folks enjoyed and want to hear some more, you know, join us on Patreon and stick around for a little VIP content. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our newest monthly voidlings, Brendan Smith, and our newest monthly avout, give to modestneeds.org and then visit deepfakestop.com. And as always, I'd like to thank our top tier patrons, our Archon level patrons, Jay Aldenwalt, Serious Inquiries Only, Lawrence Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, That Bastard Neil Polzin, and Jesse Urbinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And all the thanks to our Archduke level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space, with our new co-host, Callie Wright of the Queer Splaining Podcast. While you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons' Film Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, no matter your level of Zionic Freemasonry, you are the void and the void is you. Mm-hmm.